Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Your Normal Horror. I'm your host, Kim. And I am your gorgeous co-host, Jason. <laughs> it's Jason. He's here. So tonight's going to be a little bit rough because my throat's a little scratchy. Because Jay and I went on a date tonight to see our buddy Kevin Lee Music 81 on TikTok play at um, Bug place. Eye Grill. Bug Eye Grill and Solomon's. And on the way there and the way back, I was singing in the car extremely loudly. Extremely loud. And I can't sing worth shit, so my throat hurts. And this will be fun. You sing a lot better than me, babe. <sighs> Thanks. It's not really saying much, though, is it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know I love you. Okay, so. Um, tonight we're going to get into... Some more strange unsolved mysteries Ooh, because I, like I think that was my favorite podcast we worked on. That one and the phobia one mm-hmm. were probably two of my favorites. So I wanted to revisit the mysteries again because there's so many, like so many, so this many. Could be a never-ending. Oh yeah, it could thing. be. And I actually did have twenty written down that I wanted to cover tonight, but um, I went ahead and decided. Like, after doing my notes, I was like, this is going to take a little while, so maybe I'll just do 10, and then I'll do the other 10 that I already have written down. Maybe on a podcast in the future, so. I don't know. We'll see. Well, we are going to do it. It's not a we'll see. It's just a we'll see when we're going to do it. True. I should say. So, I guess I'll just jump right in. Sure. So, I'm the only one with the list. I gave I gave Jay the night off. Uh, yep. He didn't have to do any research. I'm a nice wife. Don't let anybody tell you differently. <laughs> he's just, he's going to be my, um, co-host, my reactor. <laughs> he's going to react to me. Dude, you're going to react to these stories. Trust me. Cause wowza. So let's jump right in. Sure. Shall we? Jumping. All right. So these aren't in any order. They're not like my favorite to least favorite, but right. I will tell you one of them on this list is probably my, my favorite mystery ever. I'm going to guess it. Okay. So the first one we're going to um, talk about is Katerina Zawada. On, the tw- on November 12th, 1998, 23-year-old Kat- Katarzyna, Katarzyna, I said that wrong the first time. I'm so sorry. It's Katarzyna, was absent to meet her mother at the psychiatric clinic in Nawahuda, where she had been treated for her depression. She never made it to the appointment. Later that day, Katarzyna's mother attempted to file a missing persons report at the local police station, but was advised to wait. However, when she didn't come back, she went missing without any, without any trace. On January 6, 1999, a sailor who was aboard a tugboat noticed something strange floating on the river. It was a long, foul-smelling thing that was pale and spotted. He got a closer look and then saw a human ear attached to it. After examination, it was determined to be human skin. DNA tests indicated it belonged to Katarzyna Zawada. Unlike every other discovered body story you'll hear, the poor sailor who discovered Katarzyna didn't discover her body. Rather, he just found her skin. In other words, she was skinned alive. So, like, she was skinned like somebody wanted to make a a skin suit and wear it. Like, she was skinned. That's... So not her body was found, her skin was found. That's wild. That's some crazy shit. Like where was where where did this take place at? This is a I believe Polish um mystery. Huh. Yep. I think they skin people in Poland. I wouldn't think they skinned people anywhere, but Well, I mean, especially Poland, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um I could see people getting skinned in like these little hole in the wall islands where 
you know, they have like their own culture and language and if you trust past, like they're gonna like kill they you don't and trust outsiders. You. Exactly. You're thinking of like movie like and I, I'm not saying this word as as I feel it, but you're thinking like savages, how they like how movies have portrayed savages with quotes, like people who don't trust outsiders and like don't aren't a part of the rest of the world. They have their own little world and like I get I get what you're saying. Well, hold on a second. But they didn't find her insides. They didn't find No, they just found her skin. So if somebody wanted to skin her to make a skin suit, don't you think they would have kept her skin and thrown away her inside of her skin? Well, I'm thinking So now I'm curious, like where's the rest where's, of her yeah, body? Exactly. And why did they get rid of the skin that they took off? I don't know. That's why <laughs> they they were like, this don't fit too good. We don't Next one. know who did it, so we don't, it's, that's, that's why it's, wild. A, it's a mystery. It's all a mystery. Where's her body? Why that's did they discard crazy. the skin they took off? What did they do with the other stuff? Like It's, it's that's, a good question. Uh, yeah, uh, we don't yeah. have an answer. Wow. Because we don't know who did it. Okay. Number two is the Silent Twins. Have you heard of this one? No, they didn't tell me about it. The Silent Twins? Yes. Ah, you're so funny. <laughs> June and Jennifer Gibbons, known as the Silent Twins, have been a source of curiosity ever since their bizarre story made headlines in the 80s and 90s. While twins are often very close, June and Jennifer took their twin bond to a whole new level. Born in 1963, the girls were originally from Barbados, but relocated to the United Kingdom. The pair rarely spoke to anyone but one another and were eventually institutionalized because of their increasingly violent behavior. After over a decade in the Broadmoor Hospital, a maximum security psychiatric institution, the sisters calmly revealed that Jennifer had agreed to die so that June could live a normal life. Then, for seemingly no reason, Jennifer did just that. The cause of Jennifer's death was identified as unexplainable heart failure, and the fate of the silent Gibbon twins, Gibbons twins remains a mystery. Due to their volatile relationships, some believe June had something to do with Jennifer's death, while others think that Jennifer somehow took her own life. Huh. So they didn't talk to anybody except each other. <clears throat> they didn't get along. And then they just decided in order for one of them to have a meaningful life, one of them had to die. Which is weird because twins always are together and do everything. And I feel most twins get along. Not these that's, twins. That's weird. That's wild too. So the mystery of that one is... How did she actually die? Like, what unexplainable heart disease? Heart failure, sorry. I don't know. Maybe she was poisoned. Well, they say maybe her sister had something to do with this since they came up with the the solution that one of them had to die. So, maybe her sister killed her. But she did go on to live a normal life after that. She talked and did normal people things. Hmm. I don't trust her. Same. Number three is the disappearance of Brandon Swanson. The 19-year-old was driving home one night in 2008 when he crashed his car into a ditch. Unable to get it running and back on the road, he called his parents for a ride. Brandon's parents agreed, climbing into the car to go pick up their son. When they asked Brandon for his location, the man said he was near the town of Lind, Minnesota. His parents found no sign of the car or Brandon and Lind. They finally located the car in a ditch outside Taunton, Minnesota, a good 20 minutes away from Lind. 
It's odd that Brandon gave them the wrong location because he was familiar with the route home. Hmm. One would be inclined to guess that Brandon was under the influence, which would explain both the crash and his confusion about the location because he, he was at a party. Yeah, so... <coughs> so they assume maybe he was a little intoxicated. Yet Brandon's father was on the phone with them for 45 minutes while they drove towards Lind, and he never reported the young man sounding off, at least until Brandon suddenly cried, oh shit, and the line went dead. Authorities thought that perhaps Brandon fell into the nearby river. Yet after the phone call was cut off, Brandon's parents tried to call him back repeatedly, and his phone kept ringing. So if he did plunge into the river, his phone likely stayed on land as it remained operational. They never saw or spoke to their son again, and it's worth noting that his body never turned up in the river. So, not just, like, he, not, you know, he told his parents where he was, they went there, he wasn't there. That's weird. But also, um, when I was researching this story, apparently his parents went to the spot where he said he was, and they, like, started, because it was, it was middle of the night, so they started, like, flashing their lights and honking their horn. Yeah. Yeah. Because they assumed he was close and he, he could see them. He could not see them and he could not hear them. So there's no no way of knowing where he was. Uh, well, his car was found, so they know where his car was. But why was his car there if he knew where he was? Like, it was it was his familiar everyday route. Like, he traveled yeah, it every single day. That's strange. He had to have been confused or intoxicated or under the influence or... But where is he? Uh, no, I don't know. He's Maybe he was eaten by crocodile. In Minnesota? Oh, yeah, that's right. It was Minnesota. I don't know why I was thinking Louisiana. I don't know either. Definitely said Minnesota. That's crazy. That's strange. That's, it's, a, that's, it's mysterious. It's bizarre. Okay, this next one's kind of a long one. It's the murder of Terrada. My throat is so scratchy, guys. I'm so sorry. <coughs> wow. In December of 2006, 13-year-old Terrada of Katzern reportedly decided to skip the last period of that school day. She stayed outside in the schoolyard with friends for a while before going back into the building to get a drink of water. Yes, I need one of those. Hold, please. It all starts with skipping school and playing hooky. She That's was where shit goes downhill. She was last seen by several students going up a staircase leading to a mid-floor of 10th grade classes. Later that afternoon, when she failed to return home, her mother contacted the police and a search began. That evening, around 7 p.m., she was found murdered in a locked stall in the girls' bathroom. Her throat slit twice and multiple additional cuts to her face, torso, and hands. According to news reports from the evening of the murder, the police's initial estimate was that the classmates were involved. This theory was dismissed soon thereafter. On the night of the murder, police detained a homeless person as a suspect. Three days later, police detained the school gardener as well. Both were released two days later due to the fact that they weren't at or near the school on that day and their alibis were confirmed. Um, on December 11th, police detained and interrogated Roman Zadorov. On December 19th, two weeks after the murder, police announced in a press conference during primetime television on the 8 p.m. evening news that Zadorov, a maintenance man, is held 
as the most likely suspect and that he had admitted and reacted the, reenacted the murder. A day later, his attorney informed that he had recanted his confession. The motive for the murder, as initially stated by the police, was insults hur- hurled at Zadarov after he denied Tara's request for a cigarette. <coughs> Both her family and friends, however, stated that not only could, did she not smoke, but she couldn't even stand the smell of cigarettes. They also stated that rude behavior and cursing were very uncharacteristic unchar- of her. That motive was dropped. Can you take over right here? Police later claimed that the motive was sexual abuse Zadarov suffered by female classmates when he was an eight-year-old in the Ukraine, which caused a rage fit after he suffered continuous pestering by the school's students during his work, but that could not be confirmed. No alternative motive for the murder was presented by police in the indictment. Initially, the Israel police leaked to the press that DNA samples from the crime scene were matched with Zadarov's. DNA and other mounting evidence were cited by the judge when remanding Zadarov in custody. Later, the indictment was filed with no DNA evidence. The state prosecution explained the filing of the indictment with no DNA evidence or laboratory test results as follows. The fact that the prosecution filed an indictment based on substantial evidence that exists implicating Zadarov without waiting for the U.S. lab results showed there is sufficient evidence tying him to the murder, and the case isn't based wholly on that issue. The DNA test results were inconclusive. A shoot... I thought they said they had DNA that linked him. Mm Mm-mm. Alright, I'll take that. Where were you? A shoe print police expert by the name of Yaron Shore claimed to have found additional bloody footprints on Tararada's jeans that match Zadarov's salamander shoes. British shoe imprint expert Dr. Guy Cooper testified in 2009 that the stains could not be considered Zadarov's shoe prints if the shoe prints if the shoe imprints at all. If shoe imprints at all. I'm so sorry. His testimony was dismissed by the court. FBI veteran shoe imprint expert William Bodziak <clears throat> also claimed in his 2013 testimony that these stains could not be determined to be Zadarov's shoe imprints. His testimony was also dismissed by the court. Hairs discovered at the scene did not match Zadarov. Three hairs found on Rada's body belonged to three different unknown people. Not all hairs in the cr- found in the crime scene were tested for DNA since the police told the lab to stop all tests once Zadarov confessed. Zadarov was convicted. He tried to appeal twice and was denied both times. So he was convicted? Mm-hmm. I think it was him. I don't. It just, it, it just doesn't seem... I mean, why would he confess to it, though, to begin with? Why would he recant it? Hmm... Because his lawyer told him to? I don't know. I don't know. That's a strange <clears throat> one. Yeah. Maybe he didn't do it, but... I mean, who else could it have been? It could have been somebody in the school. It could have been a teacher, a principal, a student, somebody who didn't like her. Somebody outside the school. Anybody. It could have been anybody. 
I just don't think it was him. We'll never know. I don't feel confident it was him. <coughs> okay. <coughs> Number five is the disappearance of Mara Murray. It's a case that sent authority authorities <laughs> into a search frenzy. In February 2004, a 21-year-old UMass Amherst nerding... Nerding. <laughs> <laughs> nerding? She got her nerding degree? Nursing student disappeared. Police said Maura Murray left campus after withdrawing $280 from an ATM. She had told her professors she wouldn't be in class due to a death in the family. That wasn't true. Murray packed a bag full of clothes, toiletries, and makeup and headed off. No one knows where to. Later that day, just before 7.30 p.m., Mari's, Murray's car... Wow, I'm killing it tonight. You are, girl. <laughs> Go. Murray's car became stuck in a ditch on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. New Hampshire? Whatever. A bus driver who passed by called police, expressing concern for her safety. Police arrived about 15 minutes later to find Murray's locked car, but not her. Police searched the area, including several homes. In April 2019... New Hampshire police, state police and FBI agents dug a few feet down into the basement of a home on Route 112. A team of over a dozen agents and detectives went into that basement. New Hampshire Associate Attorney General Jeffrey Strelzen told reporters at a press briefing they cut that area, removed the concrete, and then searched several deep feet down and covered the entire area and beyond where that disturbed ground had been. They located absolutely nothing. So, I've heard about this case before, and the only thing I didn't put in my notes was about the guy who made YouTube videos. So, uh, uh, Mara's dad, the family thinks she was uh, abducted, obviously. They don't think she ran away, which I think she may have. She told her professor she couldn't come to class because there was a death in the family when there was no death in the family. So, and then she took toiletries and stuff. Yeah. And... But her family thinks she was abducted and they, uh, the dad got on either a news, uh, like on the news or something and called whoever took her a dirt bag. And there was a guy on, on YouTube who made a couple YouTube videos and one of them is so creepy. He's just like laughing at the camera. And then he winks and like his username was like dirtbag112 or something like that or 112dirtbag, which is she was she disappeared on Route 112 and her dad called whoever took her a dirtbag. So like he was trying to to claim that, you know, he took her, but nothing ever came of that. Huh. It was just a little psycho. Route 112, where the dirtbags dwell. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right, number six is the disappearance of Asha Degree. Asha Degree vanished from her Shelby, North Carolina home before dawn on Valentine's Day in 2000. Her parents had tucked her into bed without issue the night before. After midnight, when a nearby car accident left the family's neighborhood without power, Asha's father went to check on her and found her still sound asleep. The events that followed left local police and the FBI at a loss. Asha shared a room with her older brother, O'Brien. He told investigators he heard her bed squeak in the middle of the night, but chalked it up to Asha shifting in the night. After packing her black backpack with a t-shirt and a school library book, Asha stepped outside and walked into the rainy night. Two drivers reported seeing her on the side of North Carolina Highway 18 around 4 a.m. 
One even turned around to see if she was okay, but Asha ran off into the woods. She's never been seen again. And I believe she was nine years old when this happened. What? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <clears throat> so, what? Why? What? And why? Where Where yeah. did she go? Why did she leave her house in the middle of the night? Yeah, I mean, nine years old, where are you going? She packed a little backpack with a t-shirt and a library book and just rolled out. That's crazy. I mean, I get it. I wanted to run away when I was little, but didn't. And I mean, that's wild. Uh, yeah. It's a mystery. They all are. And the next one is another disappearance, this time of Rico Harris. Sounds familiar. He was a Harlem Globetrotter. Okay. When Rico Harris's girlfriend last heard from him, it was by voicemail. He'd been on the road traveling from his family's home in Los Angeles back to Seattle to reunite with his girlfriend, Jennifer Song. It was an unexpected 1,100-mile trip for the 37-year-old former semi-pro basketball player who had never mentioned to Song that he planned to drive to California in the first place. Unfortunately, the erratic behavior was not out of character for Harris at that point in his life. Sportscasting reports that Harris had struggled after leaving basketball and had developed problems with drugs and alcohol. Though he'd been sober for several years, something prompted Harris to make a spur-of-the-moment trip to Los Angeles, a punishing drive in the best of circumstances made even more taxing by the fact that Harris reportedly hadn't slept in 36 hours. Somewhere near Sacramento, says the blog disappeared, Harris left his girlfriend that cryptic voicemail telling her he planned to go up into the mountains to rest. It was the last anyone heard from Rico Harris. So this dude's huge. He's like six foot seven, oh, yeah. 200 and something pounds. How does he just disappear? That's... I, I mean, know. how does anybody disappear? But how does he disappear? Nah. Maybe he was eaten by a bear. Maybe. Could be. I mean, the animals got him. He went up into the uh, woods and was eaten. I don't know. But you think they'd find some kind of remains? Uh, it all depends. Yeah, I guess so. Huh. Poor Rico. Oh, number eight is the disappearance of Kieran Horman. On June 1st, 2010, Kieran Horman went to Skyline School in Northwest Portland. He vanished and hasn't been seen since. When Kieran, I'm saying that wrong. It's Kieran, Kyron, K-Y-R-O-N. I'm going to go with Kieran, though. When he vanished from Skyline School, it was treated as a missing person case for nine days. On the 10th day, Desiree Young and her husband, Tony, filed into the into a church across from the street from Kieran, with Kieran's dad, Kane Horman, and stepmother, Terry Moulton Horman. Desiree Young was his mom, his birth mom. Okay. Desiree and Kane Horman have never stopped trying to get answers from Terry, who is now Kane's ex-wife. Terry is the last known person to see Kieran when she dropped the seven-year-old at school, seven-year-old off at school, and took a picture of him with his science project. Detectives have never named her a suspect, but Terry's own lawyer and a judge have called her a suspect in court papers. So the thing with this one is, like, his parent, his dad and stepmom were waiting for him to get off the bus, 
<clears throat> that later that day, mm-hmm. and the bus driver was like, "He's not on. He hasn't been on the bus." So then they called the school, and the school was like, "He was marked absent from all of his classes." So she dropped him off at school, like she says she did. <clears throat> Where the hell did he go? I mean, the only thing I can think of is, but I mean, if she dropped him off at school and she took a picture of him outside of the school with a science project. No, it was inside the school. And like she said, she saw, she watched him walk down the hall. But if he walked down the hall, where did he go? Where the hell is he? Oh, no, that's fishy. Like, if he didn't leave the school, why would he have left the school? He was seven years old. What seven-year-old decides, exactly. I'm just going to skip school and leave? So, now, I kind of think that she maybe pulled him back out of the school. Oh, I think she had something to was do like, with it. We're going to go to school. I'm going to take your picture. That way it looks like they showed it. You're mm-hmm. inside the school. And, and then, you know, she was like, you know what? Let, let's roll out for a minute. You yeah. know, and then. Did something to him. That's. She's oh. She's got the epitome of evil stepmother going on. Oh, yeah. I don't like it. I don't like that bitch. I don't trust her. Me neither. I don't know her, but I don't trust her. I don't trust her. So I definitely think she has something to do with it. 100%. But why? But like, why though? Why does anybody do anything? Is there crazy? Mm-hmm. Oh, knows. Number nine is the Circleville Letters. In 1976, residents of Circleville, Ohio, began receiving hate mail that has wreaked havoc ever since. <clears throat> the letters poked... Po- I'm so killing it. The letters postmarked from Columbus were invasive and accusatory, highlighting a supposed affair between school bus dri- driver Mary Gillespie <coughs> and the school superintendent. One letter addressed to Mary's husband, Ron, threatened his life if he didn't put a stop to the affair. By 1977, the husband was dead, the result of a suspicious one-car crash involving shots fired. When the sheriff ruled the death an accident, however, residents began receiving letters accusing the sheriff of a cover-up. The letters continued through the 1970s and early 1980s, and even after Ron's sister's husband, Paul Freshower, was convicted of writing the letters and attempting to murder Mary via a booby-trapped rig, booby-trap-rigged pistol. Even with Freshower in prison, however, the letters continued. He even received one himself. In 1994, he was released and he maintained his innocence until his death in 2012. The true identity of the Circleville letter writer remains unknown. Some still believe it was Freshore, others believe it was Mary herself, and that she used the letters to concoct and support the perfect murder of her own husband. But That's wild. Nobody knows. Is somebody taking the time to write everybody in the town a freaking letter? How many people lived in this damn town? I don't know. 12? I don't know. <laughs> I don't care what kind of shit I'm playing. I am not writing everybody a letter. Hmm. I'm not writing letters, period. We live in well, the technology. All you gotta do is write one letter and photocopy it. True. And then just write out a whole bunch of envelopes, but still. And now all we gotta do is type an email and forward it to 10 of your friends. Right. Or Bloody Mary. Good luck. Or Bloody Mary's gonna come out from under your bed and stab you in the middle of the night. <gasps> Chain letters, man. Oh. Remember chain letters? Okay. They were so fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Can you vamp for like two seconds? I need to go get water. 
<coughs> Alright, where are we at? We're at number 10. We are on number 10, the finale. It's a very long one. The creepy murder in room 1046. On January 22nd, 1935, a man calling himself Roland T. Owen, never trust anybody with three names, checked into the hotel president in Kansas City, Missouri. He showed up with no luggage. He was described as being a 20 to 35-year-old, had brown hair, a scar on his scalp visible above the ear, and a case of cauliflower ear. He was nicely dressed in a black coat and received a room key for room 1046. When the maid, Mary Soptic, said Owen allowed her to clean while he was in the room, but asked not to lock the door behind her because his friend was about to visit the room very soon. Soptic said he kept the blinds tightly drawn and the lights off with the exception of one dim lamp. Other staff members who entered the room mentioned that same detail. Soptic also mentioned that Owen was either worried about something or afraid, and he always wanted to kind of keep in the dark. At 4 p.m., Soptic returned with fresh tales to find Owen laying on the bed, completely dressed in the dark with the door unlocked. She also saw a note that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The next day, on January 3rd, Soptic came back to clean the room that morning. She noticed that the door had been locked from the outside and assumed Owen had locked it while he was leaving the room. However, Owen was sitting inside again with the lights off, which meant that someone else had locked the door from outside the room. When Soptic was cleaning, Owen answered a telephone call and said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just had breakfast, repeating, no, I am not hungry. Soptic again arrived later that evening to bring fresh tales and heard two male voices coming from inside the room. When she knocked on the door, she heard a rough voice say, who is it? When she explained that she had fresh tales, the voice replied, we don't need any. During the night, a woman staying in room 1048 would report hearing loud voices, both male and female, cursing on the same floor. Though there was a party going on that night in 1055, the next, the next morning. The next morning, January 4th, around 7 a.m., the hotel switchboard operator noticed that Owen's phone was off the hook for quite some time without being in use, so she sent the bellboy, Randolph Props, to see what was up. Despite the door having a do not disturb sign, Props opened, knocked several times and heard a voice that said, come in, turn on the lights. However, the door was locked and no one was getting up to let the bellboy in. So after knocking repeatedly, Props simply said, put the phone back on the hook, assuming that Owen was drunk. About an hour and a half later, at around 8.30 a.m., the phone was still off the hook and another bellboy, Harold Pike, let himself into the room with a pass key. Using only the light from the hall, Pike discovered Owen laying on the bed naked and assumedly, assumedly drunk. He also noticed that the bedding was darkened around Owen. The phone stand was kicked down to the ground, so he fixed it and put the phone back into the receiver. From 10.30 to 10.45, the phone was once again off the receiver. They sent props to resolve the situation, and when he opened the door, he saw a truly horrific scene. Props told the police, when I entered the room, this man was within two feet of the door 
on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. I saw blood on his head. I then turned the light on. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me, and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. Don't blame you. Yeah, right. Owen had been bound with a cord around his neck, wrist, and ankles. His neck had bruising, suggesting someone had been attempting to strangle him. He had been stabbed more than once in the chest, above the heart, and one of the wounds had punctured his lung. Blows to his head had left him with a skull fracture on the right side. In addition to the blood Probst had seen, Props had seen, I don't remember how I said his name, there was some additional spatter on the ceiling. Dr. Flanders cut the cords from Owen's wrist and asked him who had done this to him. Nobody, he answered. Asked then what had caused these injuries, Owen said he had fallen and hit his head on the bathtub. The doctor asked if he had been trying to kill himself. After saying no, Owen lost consciousness and was taken to the hospital. He was completely comatose by the time he arrived and died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Although true, Owen's true identity was revealed a year later, and a, wow. Although Owen's true identity was revealed a year and a half later as Artemis Ogletree, no suspects have ever been identified. The Kansas City Police continue to investigate. Interesting. I remember that one from BuzzFeed Unsolved. I think I'm we watched pretty, it. Yeah. Okay, because you're reading it, and I'm like, this sounds familiar. <coughs> yeah. Okay. And that, I remember that story just creeped me out. Creeped Is that your favorite? Out. That's my favorite. I know it. Mm-hmm. I it's just know like the visuals. You. The visuals of oh, like yeah. walking into the room, and there's blood everywhere. And then also... He's on his knees and his elbows with his hand in his head. No, when you read that, I'm, I'm picturing his... No, I'm picturing like his head was cut off and placed in his hands. Really? So he's like this. Like, <laughs> if y'all could see the way I'm right now, you'd be cracking the fuck up. But like, I'm picturing him like this. And just like holding his head so in his right hands. So right now, he is on his knees and his elbows with his hands in front of him, is what Jay's doing. That's how he's... But my head is still connected to my neck. For now. We'll see what happens later. Yes. (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah, that's that's, my favorite. That's wild. Yep. I agree. Who was Don? Where The The motherfucker that killed him! Yep, I would think so. That's who Don is! I'm with you. Don a murderer. (coughs) I agree with you, but we don't know. Also, why did he check into the hotel under a false name? I mean, if your name was... Artemis Ogletree. Yeah, if your name was Artemis Ogletree, you'd be like, bro, my name's Owen. Dude, that sounds like a badass name. Artemis Ogletree? Yeah. Hmm. I don't hate it. I don't know. Maybe he didn't want anybody to know he was there. And, you know, like movie stars, though, they... But he wasn't a famous person, so, like, what is he hiding? Who is he hiding from? Don? Don found him. Maybe it was hiding... Maybe he was there... To meet Don for a love affair and was hiding his true identity from his wife or Maybe. his other husband or who knows. You never know. You never know what people do. Well, that's why it's a mystery. We'll never know mm-hmm. these things. So that was 10 for tonight. I'm so sorry this episode was so rough. I had a really hard time getting through it because my throat, I just. Ugh. That's not, why. I'm not sick. It's just from singing so loudly in the car. Well, I should not do that. What's for? That's true. So, anyways, um, we hope you enjoyed. 
and we hope you have maybe some insights on these mysteries. What do you think happened? We'd like to know what your thoughts are. Um, you know, you have any ideas for future episodes? We'd like to know that too. You guys know how to get in touch with us. We have the Facebook, we have the Instagram, we have the Gmail. All Not Your Normal Horror Podcast. Pretty simple to find us. And that's that. That's so it. until next time, goodbye. Stay spooky. Bitches.